Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. So last week was Easter Sunday, and I hope that you all enjoyed your celebrations. Uh, For Christians, Easter is a day that's marked with joy, and it's marked with joy because our entire hope that we might one day be acceptable to God is based completely and utterly on the historical fact of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And so when we remember that fact, we celebrate and we're filled with joy and that's good and right. But I wasn't quite done with Easter today or this, this week. And so we're going to, I'm going to preach today on the second half of John 20. And so you'll recall that the first half of John 20 tells the story of Mary Magdalene going to the empty tomb on Sunday morning, Sunday morning, the first day of the week. So she sees the empty tomb. She runs and, and tells uh, Peter and John. They run ahead of her and get back to the tomb. They, see, they also see the empty tomb and they look around a little bit. They leave a little bewildered, wondering what's going on. Mary Magdalene shows up again, and after Peter and John had already left, she actually sees Jesus and talks to him. Um, And it's kind of a funny story because one of the first things Jesus says to her is, stop clinging to me. Go tell the other disciples what you've seen. I I need to go. (laughs) You know, it's sort of funny. Um, But... He sends her on her way to go tell the disciples what she had seen. And uh, and so that's that's what's often preached on an Easter Sunday, and rightly so. But that's not all that happens on Easter. A whole lot of other things happen that day, and that's what I want to preach about today. In particular, we're going to see how Jesus meets Thomas in his unbelief and very tenderly cares for him. And so if you've ever struggled with unbelief or doubt, which I suspect all of our hands would go up at some point, uh, hopefully this sermon will have a word for you. Now you can read in Luke, the uh, the book of Luke in chapter 24, a story of Jesus on the day of Easter, so later on in the day, walking with two men on the road to Emmaus. These two guys don't recognize who Jesus is, uh, and so they have a whole conversation with them, and he unpacks to them the scriptures about his resurrection and the prophecies about the the resurrection, uh, while they still have no idea who he is. And then they get to where they're going, they sit down, they start to have a meal, and it says that their eyes were opened and they recognize who he was. And then he vanishes, and he's gone. And... They're so excited, they're so filled with excitement that they get up right away and they run back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and so now, this is where the story picks up in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. 
So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to the, then, then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the first thing to realize about this story is that the, to remember is that the disciples were not partying on Easter morning, unlike us. They, they were not partying on, on the evening of Easter either. They had, by the time evening rolled around, the testimony of a couple people that the tomb had been empty. And they had the further testimony that uh, at least one person, or I guess it would be two people, or three people rather, at least three people, Mary and the two walking with Jesus, had seen him alive. But that didn't change the fact that they had just had the worst weekend of their lives. They had betrayed their master to cruel torture and death, and all their hopes about Jesus were, so far as they could tell, completely destroyed. And so when we find them in this room together in the evening, and it says that the doors were shut because they were afraid of the Jews, you have to recognize that they were hiding, right? They're afraid, and they're hiding. And you, you have to assume, based on the accounts, especially in Luke, uh, that the disciples had had no intention of, of gathering together so soon. They had scattered on the night of his arrest, on the night of Jesus' arrest, and things had gone from bad to horrific very quickly. And now they were terrified and in hiding. They didn't want to be seen by anybody but they had heard enough crazy stuff going on that day that they decided it was worth it to get together and compare notes. So it seems like it's very likely that this is the first time that the disciples had all gathered together in one place 
since Jesus' resurrection, and it's possibly uh, even since his, his crucifixion on Friday. <clears throat> and so it is at this precise time that Jesus picks to have a miraculous appearance. Now, what is the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples? Peace be with you. Jesus Christ said of himself during his earthly ministry that he came to bring good news, and his entire message is summed up with these few words at that particular moment. No doubt the disciples were not feeling peaceful, anything but. They were at odds with their own people, the Jews. They were probably at odds with their own families. They were afraid of the Romans. They had no earthly reason to be at peace just then. But on top of that, and even greater than all that cause of worry and anxiety, they had just betrayed their Lord and Master. And if you've ever betrayed anyone or been betrayed, it's not exactly easy to stand in front of that person and greet them again, right? There's a, there's a big hill to climb and to get over. And yet there he was, in their midst, Jesus appeared to them and speaks peace to them. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 5 that while we were still enemies, Jesus reconciled us to God through himself. Now, Jesus' followers here had broken every sacred bond that you can possibly imagine. They had betrayed the very one they had vowed to follow until death, and he still spoke peace to them. So if you're here today and you don't know about this good news, I want to tell you about it. God says in his word that you, just like these disciples, have betrayed him. You have betrayed him with your thoughts with your words, with your actions, you have broken the law of God, your Father. And God is just and he has declared that the penalty for sin is death. And so you and I, by all rights, deserve to die for our sins. But then Jesus comes and speaks peace to us. Why? Because he has paid the penalty for our sin. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that we could have peace. And so this is the offer of good news that is totally unique to Christianity. Not that God overlooks sins, but that Jesus Christ took the punishment for it on himself. And now, because of that authority that he now has, speaks peace to you. Just think about the tenderness of Jesus. There's not a hint of reproach or rebuke here. It even explicitly says that he showed them his sides, his side and his hands. This is the God that we serve, so very tender. And the disciples were overjoyed rather than overcome uh, and overwhelmed, right? This is the God we serve. Now, Jesus calms his disciples with these words of peace in reference to what had already taken place. You know, this this horrible, terrible, awful weekend that had just happened. But now, in uh, in verse 21, he repeats it. He repeats himself, and he, he speaks peace to them again. 
He says, peace be with you. As, uh, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So he speaks peace to them about their past, about what had happened in the past. And he, but he's not done there, right? He's not done. Jesus is ready to get on with the program. Jesus is ready to send his disciples out. And you have to imagine that those men were sort of doing a double take, right? Seems like things are moving pretty quick here. <laughs> um, but he's, he's given them peace for, for what's happened in the past. And he knows the chaos of trouble that he's about to send them into. And yet he speaks peace to them for that future. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now what does it mean for Jesus to send the disciples out as the Father has sent him? Jesus is obviously unique in many ways. There, there were parts of his mission on earth that only he could accomplish. And so uh, we can look at other passages in the Gospels to understand this statement a little better. In Matthew 28, in particular, uh, there's a passage, verses 18 through 20, that are f- uh, famous enough that they have their own name. You know, there are certain sections of this, the Bible that are, that are kind of famous, I guess you could say, and they have their own title. What this is called the Great Commission, because it's where Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out. And here's what it says. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this passage in Matthew helps us to see that there are two crucial elements to how Jesus sends his disciples out in the same way that the Father has sent him. First, he acknowledges that all authority had been given to him by his Father in heaven, and he delegates that authority to his disciples. We'll get to that. Uh, here in a second. But second, Jesus had come to make disciples and to teach. This his disciples were to do as well. And, um, uh, but first, I want to talk about this delegation of authority. So, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. If you jump back to, the, to our passage in John chapter 20, uh, and we, we read in verses 22 and 23, um, we see that Jesus does two things that underscore the authority that he delegates to his, uh, to his disciples. He says this, um, he breathed on them, first of all, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. And so Jesus is, to some degree, speaking in a way that foreshadows what is to come. And yet Jesus breathes on his disciples and promises them that uh, the Holy Spirit And with that promise and act, gives them the authority to boldly proclaim the good news about himself. 
right? This is authority that he's given them. They, they were not, they didn't just decide to go out and start preaching the gospel. They were given that authority by Jesus. Second, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, this, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, a sermon about authority in this church is kind of like a sermon about manhood and womanhood or sexuality. Uh, they're pretty common. But don't tune out because this is very important and this is all about the authority uh, that, is, that, that God has given to his church, not just then, but down through the ages. So it's, it's crucial to, understand, to our understanding of church authority. And the passage, this idea, the, the, the sentence, uh, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Uh, I submit to you that these are difficult concepts for us because of how much we hate authority today in this country. Americans believe in self-determination and freedom, and so we are opposed to anything that hinders us or restricts us in any way or makes us even feel like we're being restricted in any, way, in any of those ways. But when it comes to authority and responsibility, we are anemic and careless as a people. It's like uh, a weightlifter uh, at the gym who's decided to only exercise one side of his body, right? That's not a healthy thing. You're not going to be a healthy person if you only exercise one side of your body. Uh, in fact, you'll, you'll be all off balance and off kilter all the time. And in the same way, we need to have a, a right understanding of both freedom and self-determination and, and choice and all those things, and also a right understanding of authority and responsibility. And so what, do we, what does this passage have to teach us? Earlier in Jesus' ministry, one of the important conflicts that arose uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees uh, had to do with the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember this? Jesus actually declared at various times to people, your sins are forgiven. And what did, what did, the, peop- what did the Pharisees say in response to that? Do you, does anyone remember? What's that? Yeah, only God can, who gave you the authority to forgive sins? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. So then how does it make sense for for Jesus to tell his disciples that they can forgive sins? Well, you have to remember that Jesus is speaking to men who only knew the sacrificial system of the Old Testament Jews. And so Jesus is declaring to them that they have the authority to forgive sins in his name by their proclamation of his gospel. His gospel is, contains the new terms by which a man may be forgiven of his sins and reconciled to God. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, uh, there's, there's another passage that's, that's uh, very connected to this one in John chapter 20. It's, it's in Matthew 16. Uh, and it's earlier in Jesus' ministry, it's where Peter makes a declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember this? Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter responds, he blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, Jesus replies with this statement there in Matthew 16. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This passage is similarly befuddling to us in our modern day uh, precisely because of our lack of understanding about authority and how it works. But both this verse in Matthew 16 and the verse from today's sermon in John chapter 20 indicate to us the kind of authority that Jesus gave to his disciples and by extension to church leaders even down to this day. There are many ways that church leaders exercise their authority. Uh, Pastors preach and lead the congregation into the truth, for instance, and obviously. Uh, But also elders work to resolve conflict and make decisions on behalf of the whole church. And these men are responsible before God for their leadership. But perhaps the most visible and obvious demonstration of church authority comes back to the sacraments. And we've just witnessed a baptism today. Um, And uh, it was the elders, after all, who determined whether the young men who were baptized would be permitted to come and be baptized. They actually examined them to see, uh, to hear their testimony and, and, and to give them permission to come be baptized. And, um, and, and, and you have to ask yourself, is that right? Is that the way it should be? Uh, and furthermore, in the case of church discipline, what is church discipline? Um, in its most extreme case, church discipline, if, if someone is, continues in rebellion and sin and, and uh, doesn't turn back to Christ, uh, church discipline ends with something called excommunication. It's when the determination is made that this individual, uh, that there is no indication that this individual has faith or claims even to be a Christian. Sometimes they, they say, I am no longer a Christian. And it's at that time that the elders determine whether uh, they should or should not take communion. And, and excommunication is the process by which they are told, no, you may not take communion because you are no, uh, because you, there's no evidence that you're a Christian, okay? And so this is, this is right and good and proper for elders to do. They need to make that determination. That is part of their calling as leaders to uh, make those kinds of decisions. Now, we need to stop and I, because I know that there are objections, and so I want to hit them right away. And the, the first objection is, goes something like this. Are you saying that, that a priest or a pastor is the one who forgives sins? Sort of like Roman Catholics, right? Where, um, th- where you have to go into a, a confessional and actually confess your sins to a priest before they can actually really be absolved and forgiven. Uh, do you ha- are you saying that you have the authority yourself to decide whether or not, just on how you feel that day, uh, to forgive someone's sins? I think in our day and age, that kind of a question, uh, you can imagine somebody asking that question and posing it, even posing it in that kind of a way. Um, But I think that kind of question demonstrates precisely our woodenness and um, lack of understanding when it comes to authority. 
we understand many fine shades of meaning when it comes to freedom and choice, but when it comes to authority, we're very dumb and we're very wooden. Uh, So my answer to the question is no. The Roman Catholic Church is in serious error in in their understanding of these things. Uh, For instance, um, you know, they, they take that passage from Matthew 16 about the keys to refer to Peter, that Jesus was there giving Peter himself as a man the authority to be the first pope and, and to uh, grant forgiveness of sins, to actually himself hold the keys to the kingdom. They have this, uh, Roman Catholics have an understanding of the priest being a mediator between you and God in a way that uh, that is contrary to Scripture, that, that puts too much and the wrong kind of authority into particular men. But that's not what is meant here. By his words, Christ meant to adorn the teaching of the gospel and not particular men. I have authority as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to declare to men and women everywhere the terms by which God can be approached and known. And I fulfill that duty only as well as I stick to what is taught in the Bible. And so there's another question that immediately arises as a result of this, right? The, The next objection is, okay, fine, but then what kind of authority actually is that after all? Can't anyone proclaim the gospel? And can't any Christian hear a confession of sin and offer the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ? And here again I say uh, that we have an anemic and understanding, a sickly understanding of authority if, if, if that's the kind of question we ask. It's like we think that it has to be all one or the other. Right? When it comes to authority, we think that we have to be black or white. We have no ability to see shades of color. Everyone knows that some people are leaders and some people are followers. This happens in every single community. There is somebody that leads, right? Maybe especially the communities where they say that nobody is leading, right? Everyone knows that every group has a leader. And what we see all around us is not that there's no such thing as leadership, but what we see around us in our culture today is the terrible abdication of authority. And what is abdication? What What does that mean? It means you're absent without leave. You have deserted your post. It means that you had a responsibility to fulfill and a job to do, and you didn't go through with it. And we see that everywhere. We see that in the church. We see that in civil society. We see that in families where fathers have abandoned their post, uh, where leaders have abandoned their post, and, and, and they think that they are being humble by saying, oh, no, no, I'm not a leader. You know, there's no leader. Um, but all that is is abdication and, and a dropping of the responsibilities that they have. And so the answer to the Roman Catholic Church's teaching and, and their tendency to place too much authority into particular men and the wrong kind of authority into particular men is not to turn around and say that particular men never and nowhere have authority whatsoever, right? We don't, you don't have to say that rejecting the, the false teaching of Roman Catholicism means that there's no such thing as authority. No. 
those men who are set apart to lead in the church do have real authority, and Scripture commands us to obey them, uh, obey our leaders and honor them. And for their part, they are commanded to carry out their duties with all the skill and care that they have at their disposal. And so as they lead, they are not allowed to apologize for their authority or shy away from the responsibilities that that authority entails. That goes on through the whole life of a church leader, but it's seen, as I said before, very vividly um, when, uh, when you come to the, the sacraments, when you come to decisions about who may and may not uh, partake in, in the Lord's Supper. And so the, the application I, I want us to take away from this is to have a, a right understanding of authority. We don't have to pick from two extremes. It's not, you don't just have two options when we understand authority. It's more, it's more nuanced <laughs> than that. Okay, now it's fascinating that after this uh, uh, very significant delegation of authority that I've just been talking about takes place in verse 23, um, we have the story in, beginning in verse 24 of Thomas. And it's fascinating to me because you know, I, I've, I've just made a, a, this case for the, the reality of authority and the significance of it and the, the delegation of it from Jesus. And so we have the first example of the disciples using their authority to proclaim the gospel, right? The good news about Jesus' resurrection. And what happens? Uh, it's 10 against 1, and he still doesn't believe, right? He still doesn't, isn't willing to follow. And so if you're a church leader, I, I think you should take a little comfort in that. It's difficult to lead, but if you're any kind of a leader, I think you should take comfort in that. It's very difficult to lead. And it's, it's kind of a sweet, uh, sweet thing that God has given us this, uh, this story right after that delegation of authority. Um, so our rejection of authority is not a new phenomenon. It's, it, it was the first thing that happened. In fact, it's our first response, natural response to reject authority. Um, so Thomas wasn't there. It says that Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. Where was he? What was he doing? The Bible doesn't tell us, um, but you have to think, it seems likely that Thomas bore some guilt for his absence. I don't know that for sure. Um, but as I was mentioning in the, in the, uh, the previous um, service, the, uh, the old dead guys, the, the commentators that I read that, were, that have been long dead for over 100 years now, um, all made one application that I think we would have a hard time making, that modern commentaries would have a hard time making. And their immediate application was um, that Thomas missed the gathering, and so he missed the blessing. He missed a chance to meet with Jesus in the flesh because he missed the chance to, to gather together with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the first application to us today is don't miss the gathering of the people of God. God promises to meet with us when we are gathered together. Why would you run the risk of missing that? Even in the fairly recent life of our church, our elders and pastors can tell you very specific examples of very specific men who 
missed a particular gathering or other, and even while the people of God were gathered together and they were right then missing the gathering, they fell into sin that had terrible consequences for the rest of their lives, right? Now, am I trying to scare you with that? Yeah, absolutely, right? God has given us his church and it is a kindness that we have and we take it for granted, but it is not the case everywhere that Christians can gather together peacefully to worship God. I mean, the recent example of the bombings in Sri Lanka, for instance, right? This is a kindness of God to us. And why? When, God is, when Jesus has promised to meet with us, when two or three are gathered together in his name, why would we miss it? Man does not live on bread alone. We feed on God's word when we gather together to pray and study his word together. And so, brothers and sisters, don't miss the gathering of the people of God. <clears throat> so, the other thing I, I want to point out about this gathering that I found striking um, is we know that Easter was on the first day of the week, Sunday, um, and it says here, eight, after eight days, his disciples were gathered again together. Um, that actually means in the Jewish way of reckoning the days that they were again gathered together on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And, um, and so God sets aside, has set aside, I think it very clearly indicates here that God has set aside this first day of the week for his people to gather together, especially. Now, as we move on to verses 26 through, uh, 29, um, I, uh, I, my heart is, is very full with this ne- next section of the interaction of Jesus with Thomas. And so I, I would love it, I would absolutely love it if as you wrestle with what I'm saying and as you wrestle with this passage, I would love it if some of you would read through this passage this coming week and maybe if you have a question that you would send it to me. You know, any, any teacher, any, if you've ever been a teacher before, you know that... Um, if a student is asking questions, it means that he's actually listening and actually paying attention and trying to master the, the subject material. And what we have here today, I think, in these verses is so critical for us um, that it bears wrestling with. And so I encourage you to do that this week. Um, in our culture today, we think, as we read these, these verses of the account of Thomas challenging the rest of the disciples, we think that Thomas is the reasonable one. Am I right? I, I think I'm right, obviously. Uh, we think it's perfectly reasonable for Thomas to demand that Jesus show him his wounds and allow him to touch them before he's willing to believe. But we need to recognize that Jesus reprimands Thomas here. And when we see that, we need to employ the, what I call the Tim Bailey method of Bible study, right? And what is that method? It's, the, the method is, is pretty basic. It means, it says that as you read scripture, you need to f- find as quick as possible what it is about what you're reading that gets under your skin, that bugs you, that makes you uncomfortable. And you need to, as quickly as you can, 
figure out why it makes you uncomfortable and figure out what you need to do to submit to it and, and, and honor it and honor God by submitting to it. And so if you ask yourself that question, you may actually see that you resent Jesus' words here. I will admit that I did. He says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. My immediate response is, why are they more blessed? Aren't those the types of people who are losers and are going to believe anything you tell them? Right? Uh, Isn't it just prudent to trust but verify? Isn't that just good common sense? Um, Why are the most credulous, the most naive people the ones who are honored by Jesus here? Now, of course, Jesus is not honoring and... uh, um, is not honoring naivete here. The Proverbs are filled with warnings against being naive and exhortations to grasp a hold of wisdom. And so we're not talking about naivete. Jesus is not encouraging people to be simple-minded and to believe everything that they hear. Just like we have a sick and twisted view of authority, we have a sick and twisted view of faith and belief if we think that, and I think we do. I think we assume that Jesus is talking about being simple-minded, but that's nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Just last night, I saw a headline that read, and it, does, uh, it, it is related to what I'm saying here, Uh, The headline read read this, be wary of robot emotions, simulated love is never love. Now this news article was trying to deal with the question of whether a robot could have emotions like we do. Under the link to the article, I saw the following comment, and I quote, this idea that machines can only simulate things like emotions while what humans have is real is very common. But it also doesn't make sense unless you embrace the idea that humans are physical machines with some sort of magical spirit added. I would think, says the commenter, that science-oriented people would reject this sort of view in 2019. Now what is this commenter even trying to say? He's trying to say that the only reason you would even think that a robot couldn't have real emotions is if real emotions depended upon a spirit. But, says the commenter, humans are just very complicated, albeit kind of wet, machines. So, of course, robots can demonstrate emotions in the same way, right? This is the, the, the reduction in our culture to uh, believing that the only things that are real are things that you can touch, Uh, So we assume in our culture that the physical world is everything and that there is nothing beyond the physical world. And so it is assumed that the only thing you can actually ever know anything about is the physical world. If you can't measure it, put it in a test tube, or take a picture of it, you can't truly know it. You might believe it, it might make you feel good, but you can't actually know it the way you know that this podium is here. This, brothers and sisters, is a pathology of, ma- of modern man. It is a sickness. 
Uh, we are very good at arriving at knowledge in our labs and coming up with all kinds of inventions. And so we think that it is the only way to arrive at knowledge. But as Christians, we reject this. We confess that we can know truly about things that you cannot see or measure. At the beginning of the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the Word, later on down, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now these verses from the first chapter of John are a well that goes much deeper than we can even imagine. We could spend a very long time trying to find the bottom and never get there. But I want to focus our attention on a few key points. First of all, the Apostle John is trying to get us to see that the Word is more foundational than anything you see in this world that was created. The, the earth, the ground that you walk on was created. The Word was not. The sun and the moon and the stars were created. The Word was not. Even particular human languages were created. The Word was not. So the word is foundational. Second, we are a people, we are to be a people of the book and a people of the word. I don't care how sophisticated we get with our flashy technology and our discoveries about the physical world, the Bible does not say in the beginning there were virtual reality goggles, right? It says in the beginning was the word. And so our modern idea that everything you believe must come down to what you can see and touch is ridiculous and self-defeating. If you spend any time thinking about it, you'll realize that you wouldn't be able to live your life at all without regularly and constantly depending on the testimony of others. In fact, you cannot know anything about the most important things in life by examining them in a laboratory. You cannot put love or honor or beauty or goodness into a test tube. No. God's word is the foundation of any kind of true knowledge whatsoever. And so why are those who believe without seeing more blessed? It is because they have heard the spoken word, the testimony of God's truth spoken by his church and have believed it. They have wrestled with those words, just like Jacob wrestled with the angel. Do you remember this story? In the Old Testament, J Jacob wrestles with the angel of, of the Lord, and he, by the end of it, he's sore and his hip is out of joint. Just like that, we have to wrestle with the words of God, and they will, if you do that, they will change you. They will not leave your hip in its joint, as it were. So, you have heard right. The revolution will not be televised. God in his kindness has spoken to us and we must listen to his word. <clears throat> now I want to close today 
by pointing out God's tenderness to us through all of this. I saw on Twitter, and, and in fact, your, um, your response to Jesus and to this, this story of Thomas will indicate what's going on in your heart. <clears throat> I saw on uh, Twitter, that veritable fountain of wisdom and truth, right? A man ranting about this account of doubting Thomas. It must have been sometime near Easter because um, he was talking about Easter. Uh, but he was ranting about Thomas and he did something that shocked me and amazed me. Um, he actually accused Jesus of being petty for uh, calling out Thomas and sort of, you know, if you understand the word, punking him in front of the rest of the disciples, like, uh, like making him look bad in the front of the class, you know? Um, and and he, th- he said that that was petty. And my first reaction, after I got over the horror of it, um, was to think, well, I guess a thief thinks everyone steals. Um, but I think it's, it's valuable to, to bring up this example because I think your reaction to these words will reveal not anything about Jesus Christ or Thomas. They're, they're going to reveal what's going on in your heart. Are you grateful to God for giving us the story of doubting Thomas? Does it comfort you that Jesus would humble himself and allow Thomas to touch him? Or do you resent Jesus for calling you to have faith without being able to touch him? And brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you today is don't resent Jesus Christ for this. John explicitly says that these words were written down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. Have you wrestled with these words? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And we have a lot of young people in our congregation, and especially to those of you who are young, you will not, cannot, do not inherit your faith from your mom, from your grandmother, from your dad, from your church. Uh, They may try to pass it down to you. They're going to teach you. But you yourself must receive it. And that means you must wrestle with the words of Scripture, with the words of God. Maybe you are a doubting Thomas. Maybe you feel like you've, you're the one who seems to miss Jesus and to be left out in the cold. Brothers and sisters, don't be unbelieving but believing. Don't be too proud to accept Jesus' words. He has lowered himself to you with these words. So come to him. Let's pray. Father God, in this skeptical and proud age, I pray that you would humble our hearts. Help us to not be unbelieving, but believing. Help us to understand rightly what that means, that we would not be naive and foolish, but that we would be wise and come to you and and gain all the treasures of wisdom that are found in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, we pray. And especially, Father, feed us from your word. We need it, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.